Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And I dwelt on the point for a little while in our last study together how uh, James had said in chapter 5 at verse 17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Um, the prophets, including Moses, uh, were human. They were filled with uh, failure and even sin. Uh, they, they needed God's grace the same as we need God's grace. It's always amazing and astonishing and unbelievable that God uses anyone. It is not that certain people are super saints, and those are the ones that God uses. Uh, you know, here Peter is making. We know, you know, Peter and John's um, failures uh, quite well. Uh, you know, realistically, when we examine this, um, you know, John, as humble as he seems, is you know. I hate to use the term, but petty enough to tell us that he beat Peter to the tomb. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you see Peter's shortcomings all the way up through to where Paul has to confront him uh, over his caving in to the social pressures of the Judaizers who are saying that Christians need to return to the law. These people are flawed, and yet God uses them. And that's really the miracle uh, within the whole thing. Uh, the flip side of that is be very cautious of anyone who tries to elevate themselves. You know, if somebody comes along and, you know, has that air about them, like, of course God uses me. <laughs> Look how awesome I am. Look how holy I am. You know, look at my evangelistic healing ministry, you know, and, and they are taking credit unto themselves. God specifically says that he will not share his glory with anyone, right? No one. So uh, here, Peter's making that say, why are you looking at us as though we had done this by our power? This isn't something we're capable of do doing. Uh, continuing in 3 at verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. And, and that is a cutting remark, not just as it sounds in the passage, right? <clears throat> there are many, perhaps thousands, gathered here at worship who were present chanting crucify at the insistence of the religious leaders. Uh, they renounced Jesus to execution. So when Peter is saying this, he's he's maybe even making eye contact and pointing to some in the crowd who he recognized as having been there. You know, you you denied you know, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now, another application I didn't touch on 
was uh, Peter, I think, has the right to confront people for denying Jesus. Being one who denied Jesus, repented and was restored by Jesus, right? He knows those fingers are pointing back at himself, right? The, the three denials are pointing back at himself. He knows what he did, and he knows the grace of Jesus Christ and the restoration. Um, that's always a very powerful thing. When you're capable of ministering to someone with what you've been ministered to. When you can share with someone directly where you've come from and what the Lord has delivered you from. He, he delivered up to the, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So he's heaping this back on the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. You know, Pilate has his guilt, and, and Peter isn't trying to erase that. He's really putting the portion that belongs to them squarely on their shoulders, right? Pilate's trying to say, I've questioned the man, I find no fault in him. You know, he's trying to release Jesus, and they want him crucified. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And therein is human nature uh, to. Look right at the thing which is a blessing. Look right at the thing which is good and say, I don't want that. I want the destructive thing in replacement. I don't, it's not that I want the good thing and I also want the destructive thing. No, I reject the good thing and I want the destructive thing. That's human nature uh, to look right at what the Lord is saying. Like, stop what you're presently doing. You know, turn to me, repent. Follow my leading in your life, however that might be. And we go through all of our shenanigans and brush that off to go pursue the thing which we know is going to harm us. Uh, that, that is human nature within us. So here <clears throat> you asked for the murderer and killed the prince of life. Now listen, the uh, Greek language is very specific. This is the idea of the origin of all life. When you killed the prince of life, this isn't just life is beautiful. And Jesus was, you know, the most highly elevated thing in that which is living. That's not what's being said at all. What's being said is he's the author. He's the origin of life. All that is living. Jesus, that's very specifically what is being said by Peter here in verse 15. Whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And we've talked about the fact that all through the scripture, it tells us all through the New Testament that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus even makes statements about how I'll lay my life down and I'll pick it up when, when I'm ready to do that. I will resurrect myself. So then, you know, all, everybody wants to ask, well, which one was it? And the answer is yes. Right. Exactly. You know, it was the Holy Spirit. It was the Father. It was Jesus. Because the Trinity is the Godhead. So, God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. We saw this take place. I dwelt upon the fact that it wasn't just Christians who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. You know, Flavius Josephus uh, makes record of Jesus being seen after his resurrection. Roman senators uh, insisted that they had seen him in person. They were never converts. They never became Believers, 500 believers 
saw Jesus according to Paul in Corinthians all at one time, at the same time. So this isn't a story that's been made up and filtered around. There are massive groups of both believers and non-believers that saw Jesus after his resurrection. And here, specifically, we're, he's saying we are witnesses of that. So that, that's that sort of thing that the rumors have permeated the culture, and everybody's sort of heard things like this, and now here stands a man that says, I am an eyewitness to this. You know, it's a great confirmation that people already are suspect that this is true, this is real, this has taken place. It, you know, some of them may have been eyewitnesses themselves, but now here's one who's saying, I was an eyewitness to what I'm testifying. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. None of that faith lies on the side of the man as far as the power. The belief is there. The trust is there. But the power is all on Jesus' side of the equation. What do I mean by that? Um, again, we talked about it. Uh, you know, the, the Christians praying for Peter to be released from prison, they think that he is not released from prison. They think that he has probably been executed, and they're rebuking young Rhoda, thinking that she's got a strong imagination, or now maybe she's even seen Peter's ghost. They're praying for Peter to be released, but they don't believe it's going to happen. Okay. The strength lies in God's ability to perform what they are asking, not in the strength of the person who wants to see these things answered, right? <clears throat> what do I mean by that? <clears throat> Where is your faith on that slider? If, if you're super convinced and you believe wholeheartedly it's going to happen and you have zero doubts, great. Uh, but if you're all the way down on what? Mustard seed level? Right, then you can still move mountains. Why? Because Jesus Christ is still capable. That's what you're trusting in. I would strongly encourage you to more and more with every passing day as you see the trustworthiness and the work of Jesus Christ, uh, trust him more and more, right? I don't mean to bring up Kentucky and, you know, stir any hearts and make any enemies in this conversation, but we're taking big steps forward. And there's stuff going on. My wife, in going through things, comes to me and hands me a journal and says, this is one of your journals I, I found as I was packing and getting ready. I take it, and it's my journal from when we started this church. And I'm reading line after line after page after page after prayer after prayer that was fulfilled and has come to pass. And here we are sitting tonight in those fulfilled prayers. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> I know what I was thinking when I prayed those prayers. I was asking God and trusting God, but at the same time, my humanness was going, I really don't know if this is going to play out. God is the one who is faithful. So yes, faith in him and certainly your strength should be you know, your, your faith should be strengthened and strengthening continuously. But God is the one who is faithful. Jesus is the one who contains this strength. In his name, through faith, in his name, as we read, 
has made this man strong, whom you see and you know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. <clears throat> we'll deal with that in just a moment. Uh, moving forward in 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. Now, there's a qualifying remark in the Greek language that sort of indicates an ignorance, right? It isn't the idea of you're completely innocent, you had no idea what you were doing, okay? You know, here as they're writing, uh, Peter is reflecting upon his own conduct, right? And what he knew of Jesus Christ and his own denial. Now he takes them, holds them accountable, and he sort of moves that scale down, right? Like, because he can say, I did it in ignorance. Uh, why? Because, you know, whatever you've been through before with Jesus walking on water and healing and raising and, you know, feeding and, you know, all that neat stuff, uh, when you see him dead, buried, and then resurrected, that's a whole new level of experience with Jesus, right? I mean, now, now you're like, okay, now I get it, right? You know, he's moving that over to the Jews and saying, you know, you you had an ignorance. You saw these miracles. You saw this work. Had you been paying attention? Had you read the book of Daniel? Had you understood, you know, the prediction of 173,880 days from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah, right? Because Jesus actually confronted them on that fact, didn't he? As he wept over Jerusalem, he said, if now you had only known your day, right? The day that he was welcomed as Messiah, and then a week later, crucified. So there's an ignorance in that. Make self-application as it is appropriate. As did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now listen, I want to talk about prophecy, hopefully just briefly here again. Because I hear in what people are saying that they have a slightly askewed view of prophecy. Um, we read things uh, that God predicts and talks about that are out time, outside space and time. He, he does not exist in the confines of his creation the way we do at all. So, you know, I often talk about the fact that when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the ever-present one, in the, the Greek construct, it, it, he's saying, uh, it's not that I'm in the past or in the future. It's not that I can see the past or see the future. He's saying, I am the beginning and the end. <clears throat> History, future is contained in him. All things are the present to him. So before we're born, he can say of us, that one is mine. Predestined. Why? Well, because he's in the future and we are there with him. Right? It isn't that he's here in the present where we are and he can see way down the road and go, oh, yeah, look, I can see it. It's a matter of he's there. All things are fulfilled in him. 
presently, hard for us to grasp. So when he speaks to the prophets, right, it's perhaps somewhat inaccurate, but from the future, he can say to the prophet about what is to come. So they record it from their limited point of view. There are those that imply that, like, you know, the way these choices and these courses are going along and being made is, is as though God himself is doing those things and there is no choice to make in the moment. Now, there's choice to make. There is God's sovereignty and there is choice. Both things work together. Look, if we want to take the road of the Calvinists and just say, oh, no, it's just strictly all God's sovereignty and all God's predictability that makes it such we have no choice, then you'd have to take out so much of the scripture. I mean, the only way you can believe that is to say, I believe this, I hold to this, and I reject all of these other passages of scripture. That's always a very dangerous thing. When you hold to one or a few or a group to the exclusion of others, well, you say, well, I've played with that puzzle for a very long time, and it just drives me crazy. I, I go nuts trying to figure it out. Right, because it's God. You're not going to figure it out. You and I are human beings. God is talking to us from his realm of existence. You want to go even further and mess your mind up really bad? Okay. You are already in the future with God. And you kind of go, okay, you said that before. I can accept that. Well, how about the people, right, who perish right now before us? They're in the future with God presently, but if I'm in the future with God presently, then we're never separated from one another. The moment they breathe their last here, they're in the present. They will know as they are known. You start trying to understand God and your brain just pops all the fuses at once. Okay? I'm not sure how long you can play with that concept. I'm just telling you, when, when God describes things to us, you know, it's almost like he's saying, like, oh, these poor things. I'm going to lay something on them that they're just going to, you know, they're going to fight over. Literally, there's going to be a group that pulls up over here and calls themselves Armenians and a group that pulls up over here and calls themselves, you know, uh, uh, Calvinists. And they're going to shout across the aisle at one another and refuse to work with one another to spread the gospel. God is exposing to us things that are beyond our ability to understand fully. You read them and you accept it. Yeah, they were foretold by the mouth of the prophets that Christ would suffer. He has thus fulfilled. It's not like Jesus was walking along and like, oh, just a minute, I have to, and I have to. And I, the, the choices came very naturally to him. Why? Because he was perfectly within God's will. Pay attention, you know, when you're struggling with, oh, I really know I should go this direction, but I would prefer to go this direction. You're so much better off to just reject and just follow what you know mechanically, forcibly, no desire in your heart. You know, this person drives me crazy. I don't really want to like them right now, but I will make myself like them right now. You know, I will put a smile on, you know, your, your heart is, your sinful heart is screaming hypocrite, 
when really what it is is you know you're a total heathen for not just doing what the Lord is asking you to do, following His will, following His guidance, right? Foreordained for the good works that He had given us, following the Lord. So here. It's fulfilled what was said, repent, therefore, he says in verse 19, and be converted to Christianity. It's become an organized group of believers. At this point, the scripture hasn't revealed it to us, but at this point, it's already being called the way. Now, as you study the scriptures and get into that, uh, and you realize that there's, uh, we're going to see it in the book of Acts, a couple of occasions where it's referred to as the way, the way. Please don't be confused by Victor Paul Weirwald and the organization known as the Way International. Okay, That's a cult, and they simply reached back, found this in the scripture, and applied it to themselves. Uh, they deny the Trinity. They promote promiscuity. Uh, they very often, uh, you know, have drinking and debauchery involved in, uh, you know, their meetings and the things that they do. So it's 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 become very obscure. Uh, it's it's you know had its peak late seventies. It, it was kind of popular, but you, you occasionally find oh, there's a, a group that has risen back up, and if they're pulling you in, I would say just run away. Uh, straight up, it is a cult, and, and you don't want anything to do with that. So repent, therefore be converted to Christianity, to the way. Uh, they don't become known as Christians until you get to Antioch. Uh, but that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, I like that idea of my sins being blotted out. And, it, and it's, it's, the idea of, it's the idea of an ink blotter <clears throat> where you would be writing and then you would roll the ink blotter over it to lift the extra ink off so as you close the parchment it didn't bleed back and forth but it's the idea of when you roll the blotter over it it just all lifts <laughs> like the record of your sin is gone you know the mess we've created you know what was supposed to be there was godly stays what's garbage is lifted blotted out removed completely that's significant in the language because what Old Testament, all the sacrifices that were performed only covered. They didn't remove. They covered the sin. Come to the New Testament, Jesus Christ's blood, his blood removes, takes away, blots out that they exist no more. So times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord individually, collectively, and even nationally. He's, he's laying this out with the message of repentance brings peace. Repentance brings comfort. Repentance brings restoration. So, so this is a, a message to everyone uh, that is listening and, and as a whole. Um, I say that because sometimes, you know, we, we, we're praying, Lord, you know, if, if, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked way. You know, then I would hear from heaven and I would restore uh, their land. And we're saying, like, come on, like, let, let's get a big enough group praying. And this has happened. All you, all you got to do is pray and repent. That's it. 
You do it, and you will see those things happen in your life. You will see the Lord turn things away, protect, provide. You will be one of the remnant, uh, as uh, the scripture describes. So uh, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. Um, again, the... Uh, if it confuses you, I'm just maybe I'm just being overly sensitive. I, I try to refrain from ever saying the early church fathers, right? Because that is derived from Roman Catholicism, yeah, yeah, an organization built by men, very, very corrupt, very, very sinful. Uh, are there Christians who are Catholics? Yes, absolutely, right? Uh, we get that idea. But as far as an organization, belief, doctrine, teaching, leadership, corrupt. Just profoundly, profoundly corrupt. Really, really destructive in many ways. Uh, so the early church leaders, I don't, I don't say fathers, I say early church leaders. Right? They taught that if you did not re teach as a Christian or as a minister in the body of Christ, if you did not teach that Jesus Christ's return was going to occur immediately, then you are a heretic and needed to be put out of the church. So this whole idea that, oh, the rapture is like a newfangled teaching that has come into the church. No, no, no. We have writings that go right back to this time and solid within the first 100 years where the leaders were saying, no, Jesus Christ is coming back now. It's why they sold all of their goods, you guys. We're going to turn the pages here and they're going to sell off their property and they're going to live communally. Why? Because they're totally thinking this is it. We got five more minutes and Jesus is going to be back. You know what I'm saying? Five more seconds. Okay, seven seconds. Okay, 12 seconds. You know what I'm saying? They, they were waiting for Jesus Christ to return. And when Peter is making the statement, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ. That's the idea of now. They're waiting on it. They, they are completely dialed into this. Who was preached to you before? Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. And they weren't thinking long term at all with that. Which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Okay, now there, there's another little nugget in there. Uh, because the first prophet, we are told, by Jesus, by the scripture, was Abel. Okay, so... Cain killed Abel, and, and Abel prophesied. So if Abel is the first prophet, then the world began right there. So you can't like slide gap theory in there somewhere and say God started creating millions of years earlier. It was interrupted by Satan, and then the Luciferian flood wiped out all of the dinosaurs and all the people and the angels that were on the earth. And then God started creating you know, recreating the earth again when we pick up in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus, Jesus, the scripture repeatedly puts uh, creation at Adam and Eve. That's the beginning. It isn't somewhere else. It's not interpretable. You know, uh, oh, well, you know, when it says, uh, you, know, uh, you know, morning and evening were the first day. Well, that day actually was a thousand years because Peter said a thousand years was a day. Day was a why is it going to be a thousand years? Well, what, what is that for? Other than to somehow satisfy evolution. 
right? If God can do it in a thousand days, why can't he do it in one second? Why are, why are we always trying to pressurize this thing? Because there is that mentality that science is separate from religion. Science is separate from God. God science is separate from the Bible. Look, God of the Bible, God of our religion, created science. He's way into science. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you want to you study things that will just boggle your mind? There's so much stuff about how we work, how the universe works. I mean, you know, I was going to go eyes, ears, I don't know what. There's all got blood. There's just crazy things about how we're created. Flies are interesting, you know. They're, they're wings. You know, how, how do you, you know, how do you see with all that vision? You know what I'm saying? All of those eyes. That's some re really buggy stuff. But, um, you know, I like the fact that they can fly straight at the ceiling and literally in less than a centimeter, they flip over and land on the ceiling. They, they have this all timed out. They can just be going at maximum speed straight. They're just going to run their face right into the ceiling. And but no, they flip over and just land on their feet. Their timing is perfect on every level. And it's that way from the beginning of their life. It's not like they fumble and bumble around and smash into things and then finally figure it out. It comes intact in their DNA. Like, hey, I know how to fly. Watch this. And they flip over. In an insect that is so small, right, to analyze its nervous system and the way that it functions, initially they were saying, that it was this, you know, super simple globule of conductivity through the center of their body. And now, right, electronic microscope, they're looking at, well, no, hey, this thing is way complex. This thing does stuff that nobody could possibly imagine. So, I mean, examine creation and see what's there. See the, the glory of God. So this whole thing that the Lord is telling us how the, the holy prophets had predicted this, that they may send uh, Jesus Christ, preach before from heaven, must receive until times restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Now, before we move on, I was clearly referring to Jesus. Without question. But then, as time passes, the rejection of Jesus and time passes, and the culture and the religion and the spirituality and the belief system begins to shift, it actually does take on another meeting for the Antichrist. Because Moses was merely a man, where Jesus was God. So God did raise up another prophet like Moses. Jesus, had they accepted him, that would have been beautiful. But they reject him, and so this actually takes on the dual meaning of they will accept a man as their leader. They rejected God in the flesh. Now they're, all they're going to be left with is to choose uh, the Antichrist when he comes. It's really horrifying things uh, have been said by Jewish leaders about, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, but some of the most prominent Jewish leaders, uh, even prime ministers, have said, uh, give me a man or give me the devil, 
if he has a future for Israel, I will accept him. No, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, it, it sounds in a worldly way, it sounds noble, you know, as far as protecting, preserving, developing a political plan, you know, a physical plan for the nation of Israel that they could exist and survive and have peace, uh, you know, but you literally just said you would accept the devil. You know, there's some serious consequences to that mindset. So a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear in all things. Do you hear the duality in this? If it's Jesus and you're listening, uh, all the wisdom that he has to offer. Uh, if it's the devil, if you've rejected him and you're accepting the Antichrist, you'll listen to everything that comes out of his mouth. There's a really, really remarkable, very treacherous prophecy that is given here. Uh, you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Right? Again, you might have thought, well, oh, well, then that clearly makes it all about Jesus. But now flip it over because only the believers will reject the Antichrist and that leader and they will be destroyed in the process. They, they will sacrifice their lives as a result of this. So it's a really remarkable thing. That was from Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. So Acts chapter 3, verse 24. And all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow. And it seems <coughs> the reason that he puts Samuel in here as, you know, all the prophets starting at Samuel is the idea of, they didn't have anyone in that office of prophet over the nation of Israel until you came to Samuel. You had Abel, as I just described, first prophet. You had others who prophesied throughout time. You had the judges who spoke on behalf of the Lord. But then you come one more time to that place where the scripture records there was no king in the land and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then comes Samuel, and right he hears that voice calling to him three times, Samuel, and he goes to Eli, sends him back, and finally, when you hear it the third time, you know, say your servant is listening. You know, what is it that you want from me? So Samuel begins the office of prophet, and then you know, of course, you go through the Old Testament, and you have all of them. You you have Elijah and Elisha. And, and, you know, Amos and Obadiah and, you know, even Jonah and Micah and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're all, you know, it's remarkable. Um, uh, the, the offices that are filled as these come and preach to the nation of Israel. So, yes, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. See, we're still... I know I'm scrambling this all up, but we're still inside Peter's response to the people about who Jesus is and what he's done for this lame man. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 13. Uh, singular seed, capital S, uh, speaking of Jesus, also has the larger uh, perspective of the descendants of Abraham 
and uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, 3.26, to you first God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And again, I would remind us that John uh, the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Uh, that is not just a cleansing of the record. It is a cleansing of the person. Christ can deliver us from our sinfulness. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, if not most of us in this room, know uh, what it is to have Christ deliver us uh, from our sinful nature, the way we were born. Uh, we still have sin nature, so we're going uh, to struggle. Uh, we're going to stumble. We're going to have failings and shortcomings. But the nature of sin should have been removed from us, that we no longer are subject to it. We are no longer enslaved to it, being obedient uh, to our sinful flesh and its nature. 4, verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple. Now, we're not far from Jesus' uh, betrayal, trial, right? Crucifixion. So when you're reading about the priests and the captains of the temple, in all probability, some of these men, if not all of these men, were actively involved in the arrest, the betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, so to me, it plays out interesting in my mind to now have Peter standing in their face, confronting them in this way. So um, now as they spoke uh, to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, and we're, you know, we're going to get into they don't believe in the resurrection and these things, but the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, a couple things. Particularly the name of Jesus comes into play here. They, they want to question Peter and John over what name because they've got a biblical legality that they're going to try and apply in this circumstance. But also, Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. Right? This, this is a myth in their mind. Uh, it, it's strange. Um, they prominently hold to the first five books of the Bible and then that's it. Um, there are some other things uh, that they believe and hold to, Talmud, other writings. But it's a very narrow window. They're, they're pretty much strictly confined inside the idea of the writings of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, pretty short-sighted, uh, given all the history of Israel and especially like you know, Peter's talking about here, the prophets, but that's where they're at. They, they have this very isolated, strict form of religious belief system, and they're greatly disturbed that he taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Not so much that they preach in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, but just that they're preaching the resurrection from the dead at all is, is disturbing to the Sadducees. Um, and of course, the, the cliche fits in there, right? That's why they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. So, um, so they, they uh, preached the resurrection uh, from the dead, and they laid hands on them, and they put them in custody until the next day. 
and this is uh, part of the reason just as far as sort of the nuance part of the reason that we believe that when Peter and John went to uh, the uh, hour of prayer it was uh, late in the day uh, they were coming to the, 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 the three hours of prayer uh, and they were there at the ninth hour uh, at evening and because it's now sunset or the day is ending they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening however many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000 3,000 now we're up to 5,000 there is some uh, indication in the language that it may have been this is an additional 5,000 so now you're talking 8,000 uh, believers sold out hardcore believers inside Jerusalem either way you know, talk about pop-up church, you know, what, maybe 120 remnant hanging out, going to church, and the next day 3,000 people are at your church saying what time does service start, you know, and days later 5,000 people are saying what time does church start. And seriously, and as we described, Acts 2.42, uh, they were at the temple teaching every day. So the apostles were going and teaching this great throng of people. So you can imagine how pleasant that was for the religious leaders also. You know, they, their, their business cards are becoming more and more useless every day. Why? Because Peter and John and the apostles are all gaining the attention of these new converts. So um, 5,000, it came to pass the next day that the rulers, the elders, the scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, right, they were present at Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, John, and Alexander. Some debate about how, who John is in this setting, not worth your time to tear apart the whole thing and figure out which John were they talking about. Because uh, others, way smarter than us, have done it for thousands of years and still haven't figured it out. So, you know, we'll just ride with the idea. And Alexander mentioned previously, And as many as were of the family of the high priests were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, this is really where they're going to hang their hat on this trial. The resurrection, this is a much larger group of the religious leaders. So the, the Sadducees are only a portion of the complainers and the accusers at this point. So they've, they've uh, focused on the broader picture of whose name are you accomplishing these works in? By what power or by what name have you done this? And this stems from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, where uh, Moses wrote, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name. So he's speaking on behalf of God and saying, If a prophet steps forward and speaks in the name of Yahweh, so if he speaks forward presumptuously, which I have not commanded him to speak, or he who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. If he steps up and says, thus saith the Lord, and then it doesn't happen, take him outside the camp and stone him to death. Do not listen to the false prophets 
at all. Okay? Uh, the scripture is very clear. Um, sometimes when the Lord pronounces judgment, he'll say things like, put them out of the camp. And there's perhaps the idea of capital punishment in that, but it could also mean excommunicate them, you know, shun them, be done with them, send them on their way. This doesn't even give that level of leniency. Kill them. They must be executed. If they come to you and they say, thus saith the Lord, and then it, it doesn't come true, or it's found that what they say is false, that, that it's steering uh, the people of God away, that it's, it's teaching them falsely. If it's doing things that are incorrect to the scripture, then according to this, uh, you shall put that prophet to death. If they try to teach you according to another God, and, and you say, well, we wouldn't listen to them anyway. You know, if they show up here trying to teach us, you know, from, you know, some Eastern mystic, or we, we would reject that. that we, well, what about those who come and say, I'm teaching in the name of Jesus, but then when you find out that they're actually Mormons and the Jesus they're talking about is not the Jesus from the scripture that you believe in. They're teaching another God, right? And New Testament sense, right? Don't, don't kill anybody. God isn't calling us to do that at all. But listen, they should be as dead to you. Don't listen to them. The same as a dead person could never speak to you again once they've passed away, so it should be with the false teachers and the false prophets. If they've made the declaration, there's room for them in the kingdom, right? Jesus specifically tells us through Peter that he paid the price for the false teachers. That's a remarkable statement. If they were to repent, right, they could be saved. The power of Jesus Christ's blood to blot out the record. Remarkable grace that we see the scripture are presenting there, but it seems to be that they should never have a position of teaching again. You, you don't get uh, to get a second swing at that, you know, pitch. If you've been a false teacher, if you have spoken falsely in the name of God, then you probably need to just sit down and be taught. You don't. You don't get to be a teacher of the body of Christ anymore. Your best example, your best teaching, you could give to them is to shut your mouth, sit down, and learn. Serve by example that I was wrong. and you know, It was good to see Jim Baker, while he was in prison, publish the book, I Was Wrong. That was good. What was unfortunate is he, he got out and went back teaching his shenanigans and doing the same old things that he was. Unfortunate. Really, really tragic to see that sort of thing happen. So, what power, what name are, are you teaching in? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Whoa, wait, hey, just a second. Peter got filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Well, what is this talking about? The fact that we need to continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit. This, this is specifically saying, in this moment, Peter was filled afresh, anew, with the Holy Spirit. If you don't think 
that you need to be constantly being refilled anew with the Holy Spirit, you have not hung out with you. Right? It fades. You dry out. Right? I think it was Charles Finney when uh, he had finished praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit as he was going to speak and someone stopped him and said, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. How can you ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit again? And he simply said, I leak and walked away. Right? I think every one of us, uh, at least experientially, understands that concept of the constant cleansing, the constant filling, the constant renewing that has a loss of salvation. No, not at all. Not at all. Right? If it's oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit, and it is the flame of our lives, then it must constantly be being refilled. You know, if you've plugged right into the pipe and it's just flowing in nonstop, praise God. Right? But but the filling must come. So Peter, filled anew, afresh with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well. So since you're dragging us out here on the carpet because of a good thing that we've done, we can be very clear about that. We can explain that to you. He's doing what Jesus did repeatedly. You know, you know, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? You know, what are we talking about here? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And now you got to go back to the beginning of the chapter when you get a moment and just review who is present. Because you can guarantee the finger is pointed straight at. People. He just takes a slow run down through the line, maybe. I don't know how that went. But he is most definitely referring to you are the ones that carried this out. You know, maybe maybe John's not connected who we don't know, and he just skips over him and goes to Alexander. You know what I'm saying? But he is directly confronting, filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing, right, knowing Deuteronomy 18.20, that potentially he could get stoned to death right here. They might judge him as a heretic and kill him for what he's saying. The one who had previously said, I will die at your side. You know, unless a little girl asks me if I know you, in which case I'll, you know, renounce you completely and run away. Now, there's a boldness. What did Jesus say? Stay in Jerusalem until you have received Uh, Deutimus, dynamic power, dynamite power from an eye, to be my witness, my martyrs. You stay in Jerusalem until you've received the Holy Spirit, a dynamic power that will make you capable of even dying for my testimony. And now Peter's standing here, filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, just unleashing on these people and confronting them in a way that is really remarkable in this moment. 
So, uh, uh, we did this good deed, let it be known, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, the first um, uh, word, first name, right, Yeshua, which is Yahweh, God the Father's name, Y-H-W-H, compound word uh, of salvation attached to Yahweh. So, Yahweh's salvation. So, you want to know how I did this? I did this by Yahweh's salvation, the Christ. They are waiting for the Christ. The religious leaders had even asked Jesus, tell us plainly, you know, are you the Christ? And he says, I already answered you on this matter. So, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the only anointed one. And I mean in all of world history. Buddha was not Christ, as is commonly taught, especially in this region, on Mount Desert Island, and all of the New Agers, you know, there's an annual seminar that's held around the time of Christmas, uh, where you know they they give a presentation on Buddha the Christ. Uh, you know, Christ is just a position. Many many people have filled that position throughout history. No, that's not true at all. There's only one Christ, and it is Yahweh's salvation, the Christ of Nazareth. That place that you despise, that place that you speak evil of. The Romans loved to be stationed at Nazareth because it was a place of drunkenness and prostitution and debauchery. You know, so when Nathaniel's asking, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? This is what he's talking about, right? Also, the fact that from their perspective, the scripture had not prophesied that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth. Uh, they commonly referred to Nazareth as uh, Galilee and Nazareth of the Gentiles. So, so it was almost, in their mind, non-Jewish. Uh, so uh, Peter puts the sting on the end of the thing. Yahweh's salvation, the Christ, the Messiah you've been waiting for, was from Nazareth. And that just ruffles their feathers. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And oh, they know that, right? Because they paid the bribery money. The Roman guards come back and say, angels rolled a stone. Jesus ascended. We're just, we had no ability. It was crazy. It was supernatural. And they say, Go tell everyone that the apostles came in the middle of the night, overpowered you, and stole the body. We move forward into the book of Acts, and the guards who are specifically guarding Peter, when they come, the, the angel comes, kicks Peter, wakes him up, tells him to get his clothes, leads him out of the prison. When they go and see Rhoda, uh, those guards are questioned the next day. And when it is found that they failed at their duties, they're put to death with their own swords, which was Roman law. Right? So, so these men right here paid sums of money to the Roman government to allow these men to tell this lie that Jesus had been stolen from the grave. So God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands, be, stands here before you whole. Doesn't stop there. Keeps right on the roll. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, right? So he puts that right on them, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is 
no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, you got to understand how much they they have locked into Deuteronomy 18:20 about what name or what power have you performed this miracle and they're they're fully expecting to just bulldoze these guys right into the earth with this. You're, you're convicts, you've violated the law and you will be put to death is exactly where they're headed with this and instead Peter just dumps their whole apple cart right upside down in the moment. He uses their momentum to trash them. He, he This whole thing at the end, when he's saying there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is as good as him just walking right up to the podium and slapping them right across the face. It, it is such a confrontation in this whole thing. Uh, you know, forget you know, the law and the way that they're viewing this and the lens that they've got this thing fixed in, they saw Jesus perform miracles. They saw Jesus, they saw him raise Lazarus, and in the next chapter, they're like, we're going to have to kill that guy. How absurd, how absolutely insane do you have to be to form that kind of conspiracy and plot? We saw somebody raised from the dead. Well, we're going to have to kill that guy. It's just a really bizarre approach uh, to how this whole thing works. So uh, his confrontation with them is, is very complete. The stone, which was rejected by the builders, um, there is some argument today as to whether that was an actual event that took place. I'd like to be able to say it was. It may be legend. It may be sort of mythology, uh, but the story is in the construction of the temple, they had quarried all of the rock according to very exact measurements away from the temple mount, transported all of the stones there, and they were supposed to just be fit together perfectly without sound of hammer or chisel on the temple mount. Early on, they uh, assembled what is, you know, Different debates, cornerstone, you know, as we see here, or capstone, as it is uh, talked about in other portions of Scripture. It would probably be easier and more uh, accurate to think of it as the cornerstone, because this was the stone that all of the time was, it's usually very large, all of the time was spent on making it perfectly square, usually perfectly square, but perfectly cut. Its angles were very, very exactly 90 to set in the corner. And the reason is they would do this hyper-sensitive survey, have all of the footer and the underlayment set, and they would set the cornerstone exactly where it was supposed to be with all of its perfect measurements. And then the rest of the building could be built off that cornerstone. Every measurement could be drawn from there uh, in any direction. You could figure out where you were in the blueprint off from the cornerstone. You know, if you're halfway through and walls and things have got all confusing and you don't know exactly what plumb is or left or right or perfectly square, you can draw your measurements back to the cornerstone and you can fix that. And it was intended spiritually and scripturally 
to be that idea. Jesus is that. So capstone, finishing stone, some even go as far as to say keystone. I think that that just muddies the water up. Cornerstone, much more accurate. And much more fitting in the idea of construction, both physically and spiritually. Our culture is very confused right now about lots of things, right? You know, we don't, we don't even know what a man or a woman is anymore. You can literally draw your line back to Jesus and find that out. As he tells us that it was not so from the beginning, God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and the two became one flesh. So marriage is between one man and one woman, not any other pronoun, you know, weirdness that our culture decides, right? Culture's constantly moving the lines, shifting and changing things. You know, life, where does it begin? Well, according to the scripture, before you're born, right? God names Cyrus 150 years before he's born. So you don't get to mess with any unborn child, according to the scripture. When you draw the lines back to Jesus, everything else falls in place. When you try to view it through any lens that our culture has created or is presently creating, everything gets weird and warped and out of shape. You'll be left horribly confused. So here, Jesus is a cornerstone. You rejected no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Uh, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now make no mistake about this, right? This isn't to say that they couldn't read, they couldn't write, that they were uneducated in the broader sense. Um, we see Peter quoting endlessly in Acts chapter 2. I say endlessly. It's something like 86 times from the Old Testament. Okay, uh, So he had a profound knowledge of the Scripture. Wrote things, wrote uh, you know, with uh, John Paul, uh, you know, uh, wrote uh, uh, the book of Peter. Uh, you know, just uh, first and second Peter, so many things that were, were uh, so fitting, so powerful for the body of Christ. This is the idea of they didn't go to our schools. That's literally what it means. Okay, uh, so it perceived that they were uneducated and untrained in their schools. They they didn't go uh, to the specialized training under Gamaliel, who's going to you know speak in chapter five. They. They, they weren't taught by Nicodemus, the, the ruler of the Jews. Uh, they, they were fishermen, and in their opinion, very plain and humble. They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated, but they had been with Jesus, and that should be the earmark of the strongest disciple and the strongest child of God is that you've spent time with Jesus Christ. You know, you get the opportunity uh, to go to Bible college. I would strongly encourage you to do so without any question. Powerfully uh, effective in, in training and teaching the word of God. If you don't ever get to do that uh, and you spend every waking moment that you can with Jesus, you'll outshine the seminary student every single time. 
the Lord will work powerfully through them. John uh, chapter 17 verse, or excuse me, chapter 7 verse 15. John 17, 15, referring to Jesus, it says, They marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? They said the same thing about Jesus. Okay. Um, when Jesus went to the temple with uh, Mary and Joseph at 12 years old, and Mary and Joseph leave, and they travel for a whole day before they realize that Jesus is not with them. They weren't irresponsible parents. This commonly happened where uh, the women would go ahead and the children would cluster in between and run back and forth and you know, get to know their friends and their cousins and the men would follow behind and make sure nobody lost their shoe or their kid. And, you know, they would arrive at the destination where they were walking and traveling together. So travel for a whole day. You know, Mary's thinking Jesus is back there. Joseph is thinking Jesus is up there. Arrive at destination. No Jesus. Everybody panics. Three days of searching. They find Jesus in the temple. Confrontation. Jesus saying, right, did you not know that I'd be about my father's business? Well, actually, Mary first says, basically, you know, you gave your father and I a heart attack is what she's saying. And he has to correct her in, you know, I appreciate Joseph. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm here doing my father's business. What he was doing was questioning the religious leaders in the temple. The, the term questioning comes from the training of the boys who were under 12 years old, who were enrolled in what was known as the school of the book, and the religious leaders would stop them, and they would ask them, uh, you know, Deuteronomy 18.20, Deuteronomy 18.20, uh, what does it mean? And they were required to quote the entire passage, and then they had to give the two most common explanations, and then their own understanding of what it meant, what they believed. This is what Jesus is doing to them at 12 years old. He's asking them pointed questions about the Old Testament. If you are, you know, uh, a uh, 20-something-year-old Nicodemus, a 30-something-year-old Gamaliel, and this 12-year-old kid shows up and he is grilling you on your knowledge of the scripture. And he is making you look like a doofus, right? He, he is asking you questions you cannot answer. You know, uh, you know the, the Messiah, whose son is he? You know, he, tearing them apart there at 12 years old for three days. For three days, it's going to be super unpleasant for them to be experiencing that thought. My, my um, suspicion is that that was from some of the first occasions where those re religious leaders began to make note of this little Jesus of Nazareth. And then 17 years later, right? He shows up in Galilee and changes water to wine and begins an earth-shattering ministry that brings them to this point. How is it that uh, you know this man doesn't even know letters having studied? How can he possibly do this? 
Spirit of God upon them. Seeing the men who had been healed standing before them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. The logic is absent. Yeah. I know the miracle has been done. This is a wonderful work. And but so that this doesn't go any further, why would you want to stop this? What would compel you other than the great wickedness? Now, Jesus confronted these men and said, You are of your father the devil. <laughs> he was a murderer from the beginning. And you're murderers. And you're planning on murdering me. Uh, Jesus was very confrontational. So they called them in, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. There's the answer for our governor. Right there. Tell us we're going to close our churches down. No, we're not. No, we're not. <clears throat> this church closed down for one week. We were all a panic about what was this new COVID thing. And we opened up the very next week in defiance of the government. When they were saying you cannot be open at all, yeah, social distance and wear masks. And, and in fact, they were telling churches you can't be open at all. We opened the doors. And I told this congregation, as far as I'm concerned, those do doors will never close again. Not because of the government's say so. We're not, we're not going to do that. So, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. They would have beat the stuffing out of them, maybe even killed them. The, the difference here is, right, 120 followers, they crucified Jesus. Now, 5,000 followers in the temple saw this miracle, profoundly touched by it. They're recognizing, hey, this power of this one man, Jesus Christ, has transferred. And there's another group that has continued on where he left off, which tells all of these people that power can transfer to me. Change my life. Deliver me from my sinfulness. Perform God's work in my and his will in the world around me. So we cannot speak uh, the things which you have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old when, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And we're going <clears> to <throat> get into uh, the whole uh, furtherance of this issue they don't drop it there it continues on over uh, the healings that the lord is performing uh, here in this man and others uh, as we move forward so um we'll pick up at verse 23 it's kind of an odd place to leave off but we'll pick up at verse 23 next week that way uh, you know we can get you guys out of here roughly on time so let's stand and we'll pray
Father God, we are grateful for your word, for the way that it teaches us, for the things that it does in us. Help us to be men and women who live in your word, who are daily in your word and in prayer and fellowship, opening our homes, our hearts, our lives to one another. Accomplish what you want to in us and through us and by us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.